You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, and my guest today is Ellen Chiza. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, Lou. I'm excited to chat. Me too. If you don't know Ellen, folks, uh, she's part, a partner at uh, Bold Start Ventures. Uh, she invests in companies as early as possible, pre-product, that are building enterprise software products. Ellen, I wish we were building enterprise software products, because that sounds like a really great place to be. Um, and uh, if you are wondering why I'm talking to Alan, well, um, besides uh, that just being such a, a, a compelling space, uh, we are also having her as our opening keynoter at Design and Product 2023, taking place virtually November 29th. Uh, and Ellen is going to be giving a talk that I'm really fascinated by already. That's a lot of what we'll be talking about today. It's called The Values of Design. And Ellen brings a very different set of perspectives and experiences that I think we need to hear in the design space. Uh, I, you know, Ellen, I mean, I think you've been very involved in design, but would it be fair to say that you don't think of yourself as a designer? At this point, I don't even know what I think about myself as. Uh, my background was I was originally an engineer and went to engineering school. I have an MBA and now I'm a venture capitalist. So people think of me as being on the business side. I was a founder for a while. But I do think of myself as being someone who really values making things for other people and that work effectively for other people. And I think that's one of the core places where I feel a lot of alignment with design as a profession. What, what I'm hearing already from you reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the conversation I had with uh, our other keynoter a week ago, John Cutler, uh, talking about different frames or lenses on creating products. And uh, you're already bringing up really a few just in your your perspectives one from a business perspective one from another from a, a development perspective i guess would you say would you, would it be fair to say that you you came into um understanding the design perspective uh just sort of by by being at startups like you had no choice someone had to do it were you, um, how did that work for you? How did you find your way into yeah. at least thinking about design? This is funny. I wasn't expecting to end up here, but I think it's actually really important. And this is why I wanted to write this talk for the conference. But the engineering school I went to, one of the core fundamental classes everyone had to take was called user-oriented collaborative design. And I think it's a little bit more popular now, but it's um, really based on the IDEO methodology of saying, hey, before I decide what I'm going to make or what kind of product I'm going to build, I'm going to go and I'm going to interview a bunch of people who are in that space and then come up with ideas and then refine down and then take the ideas back. It's commonly called a double diamond method. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of your listeners have spent time there. And that really resonated for me. And so I think that's where it originally came from. But it resonated for me so strongly that I was fixated on that being the only possible way to build things for, I would say, probably the first five years of my career. And okay. I was unwilling to compromise on it to the point where I really thought it was a moral failing if someone didn't follow that exact methodology. Um, and kind of one of the things over time that I've worked on through startups and through other experiences and through other lenses is thinking about that more broadly and saying, hey, this design toolkit is one toolkit I have in my belt, but there's other ones too. And I think many other, I guess, I don't know, 
I don't know if I fully identify as a designer, but that I think many designers would benefit from being able to take tools out of other professions toolkits and use them side by side with the design methodologies. Are there any in particular that you found really potent combinations with the design toolkit? Yeah, um, there's a few frameworks I really like. One is called Pasteur's Quadrant, which is the idea of thinking about where is technology going and then thinking about what opportunities will be created by that. Uh, so one that's really top of mind for a lot of people today is we have these new generative AI products and a lot of people are talking about chat GPT. And so it's one thing to say like, okay, I see that this product exists. I can ask it to edit my emails. I can ask it to generate some ideas for me, but it's quite another to say, okay, if this is where large language models are today, what might they look like in five years? And mm -hmm. what would I start to build now knowing that the technology might get there? So very much, uh, I would think of it as almost being like futurism in a way. That's a little bit like uh, scenario planning. Yes, it's very similar to scenario planning. So um, are you able to divulge uh, some of your uh, your guesses as to where things might be in five years? Oh, I've, I've never considered myself to be particularly good at this. Um, one of the ones I definitely think about a lot, and maybe this is even too near term for five years, I think right now we have a lot of content around AI where we're saying we can ask it questions about sets of information, or we can ask it to generate sets of information, I think we're going to see much more action. And so one of my areas as um, someone who cares about developer tooling is something called APIs, mm -hmm. which is basically how does a computer talk to another product, what actions are available. And so I think combining APIs and generative AI will be very interesting because you'll be able to say, hey, could you book this plane ticket for me? And something like ChatGPT or another tool would actually be able to go and say, oh, okay, I can look at the API for Google Flights or for Kayak or for Delta, figure out what the right flight is to book and actually book it. And so we won't just see content being generated, we'll see actual actions being taken. Including so transactions. Including transactions, for sure. Do I really want to give uh, that robot my credit card information? And yeah, and so like I think that like for me, flights are an easy one because you can cancel them for free within 24 hours. Um, but I think that's like what we'll start to see. And so then how do you say like what is your personal level of comfort for what you would enable an AI personal assistant to do? Like I assume you probably have had cases where you're speaking at a conference and someone else is booking your travel or you're like traveling for a business meeting and you trust another person to do that. Would you also trust a, an agent or a I guess it's kind of like, it's not a digital person, but an agent to do the same sort of thing. Right. Interesting. You know, and there's not a conversation I've, I've had just in these podcasts for the last few months where AI doesn't become, you know, a, an important topic we cover. Uh, so, so interesting how that's on all of our minds. And yet, and yet, um, I don't want us to get too far away from what I think you're going to be talking about at the conference. And you actually have a really interesting question that someone who doesn't necessarily see herself as a designer, it's a great question to be asking. Uh, that question is, how can I create more business impact while still feeling like a designer? So does that line up with some of those external to design toolkits that you have been finding to be really potent in combination with the design toolkit? Or is it something else altogether? It, how do you answer yeah. that question? So I think another one that I think of as being really important is the ability to think about a business model or financially how your company works and why. 
And so I think like a common one I'll hear from friends who are designers, depending on their stage of company, but they'll say, hey, I work at this startup. We're doing really well. We have 50 people, but we have these really ambitious growth goals and we have to grow revenue. Why can't we just stay the same? Like this business is working. And what that will come from is sometimes people won't necessarily understand how much it costs to operate the business and that the amount of revenue coming in doesn't fully cover the costs as is or that the company is venture backed. And so has an investor who is expecting a specific outcome over time and is expecting the company to keep growing because it's already raised with um, with sort of a story in mind for how it's going to get there. And so when you don't have that context of being able to think through the business model, that can be really challenging. And I think one of the places that really came from for me was I worked for a while at Kickstarter as a product manager and Kickstarter is a tool that helps creative people raise money for their projects. And one of the things I saw while doing that is a lot of artists are very uncomfortable saying, oh, you should pay me for my art. You should assign me value to my art or promoting their art because they think the art should speak on its own. And I've seen a lot of in in common between artists and designers in that regard, because both are very creative people who care a lot about the integrity of the work as is. And so designers will sometimes go, ah, I can't, I don't want to think about that financial ramification of the work because it uh, prevents me from thinking about it purely is like what the best thing to build is. And I think opening up that door a little bit to give yourself a little bit more context and give yourself a little bit more financial knowledge can can be really powerful. I don't think that's solely a form of selling out. Listeners, you may actually be hearing me smile right now uh, because as a publisher, uh, I feel like the same challenge of getting my my designers namely my authors to promote their books but that that's a whole nother story um but actually speaking of books um i i kind of i i wish we would find someone to write this one but i kind of feel like there is a big gap for designers in having those business modeling tools uh packaged in a way uh, for them to actually kind of connect the dots that you're describing. And you do it... have, um... oh, I was going to say, you do have Christian's book, which I wrote one of the testimonials for, which is product management for UX people, which I think gets you a little bit closer. Oh, absolutely. I think product is one step towards the business relationship, but I interrupted. I would love no, to no, more and, about and, that. And uh, by the way, uh, listeners, Christian is actually the, the co-curator with me for this conference, uh, Design and Product. Uh, and he's why I know you, Ellen. But um, the um, uh, that sort of toolkit, is it a toolkit? Is it something that until Rosenfeld Media or somebody else publishes the book, uh, is it something that you can get somewhere as a designer? Or do you have to get an MBA? I think an MBA is one way of doing it. An MBA programs very wildly. I could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about the merits of different types of MBA programs. Um, but I would definitely think of it more in terms of what are the ways designers can learn adjacent to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that might be you're working on a new feature that's going to launch soon and you decide to spend a lot more time going in depth with the product marketer who's working on that feature launch and kind of understanding what does success look like on day one? How do we know that we had a really good launch for this? Or it could be you're working on a feature that is hopefully addressing some of the needs of your large enterprise customers. And you look at how that improves retention in your product and getting people to be sticky or how it, um, 
you could spend more time with your finance team understanding something called net revenue retention, which is when your customers, in addition to continuing to be your customers, they they expand and they pay you a little bit more money because they're getting even more value because of the work the designer has delivered. And so when I'm thinking about these journeys into saying, hey, I'm in one discipline, how do I get a new lens? I think the most approachable way for people is to figure out the direct tie into what they're working on right now, rather than approaching it as this big monolithic thing that's far away that they need to learn. So um, the foot in the door are some metrics that are accessible and aren't going to require, let's say, not only extensive re-education, but... um, well, I mean, one of the problems I think a lot of us have and when we try to learn a tool set from any adjacent area is the language. Uh, can uh, Do you find that uh, that's an issue with designers trying to pick up some of these metrics that they may be unfamiliar with? Yes. I feel like all of our fields have a fair amount of jargon, whether that's engineers talking about Git, DevOps, and AWS, and GCP, and IAM, and um CSPM and like there's like a whole range of developer focused language or cybersecurity focused language and finance people have the same thing. And so I there's a few different ways to go about it, but I think often with questions like that, which is, hey, I need the 101 of the language, mm-hmm. your best bet is almost always finding someone who is a real person that you know and trust who can do a little half hour 101 with you. I'm sure designers have experienced this. Maybe you're an early career designer and you reached out to a mid-career designer who's two years further than you to say, hey, how did you go from where I am today to where you are? Can you give me a little input? Similarly, people who aren't necessarily the CFO of a public company, but are someone who's a controller or a junior finance person in your company, they're going to be excited that someone's interested in what they're working on. And they're probably going to be happy to do a little bit of that 101 and help make the organization better. Well, and a lot of junior designers, this is not even something they've considered, like going around and, and finding someone to ask or even asking them. So it's, that's just great advice right there. Do you find that, um, and I know you do a lot of work in, uh, at least on behalf of enterprise customers, or at least thinking about them as an audience, in those settings, do you find that business analysts are good people to talk to and are willing to talk to a designer? Or are there other people that um, should also be considered? I think yes. I think one of the things that people who work close to the product forget is that in many cases, business people or people who are in different parts of the organization think of the product like product design engineering part of the organization is there are fewer people over there. It's this limited resource. We really need them to be built in quickly. We don't want to bother them. And mm. so there's equally much an intimidation to go talk to those teams. And so I think most junior business people would be happy to hear from a designer. I think they would often think of it as a compliment, frankly. See, that's that's a really great insight. And it, it lines up with uh, another kind of aha for me, um, Earlier this year, I was at a product uh, manager's conference and, uh, you know, the first few talks and, and a lot of the people I talked with uh, just in, in the hall were talk- product managers talking about how they're sort of misunderstood and no one sort of values them or even takes them seriously. And, you know, coming from more of a design side of things, that's what the designers are always saying. Yep. And I, I like you know, like the, the designers assume PM the product design. people are, they've got it all figured out. They know what they're doing, or at least they can fake it well enough that they control the budget. They, they manage the P&L and we have no power and they have all the power. And yet, I don't think that's true. I think in a way, nobody has the power. <laughs> I'm not even sure the C-level people have the power because 
they don't have the the ability to see it to see what's going on well enough to have you know maybe a comprehensive enough perspective to exercise the power that only they really may have i think they're the best option we've got but yeah at the end of the day i think no matter what role you're sitting in in an organization you're trying to aggregate a bunch of different viewpoints together and come to the best possible answer and you're never going to know everything um whether that's imperfect information or it's just because the future is unknowable. In many ways, you're coming up with the best decision you can make with the information you do have. And some of that, uh, it's not scenario planning, but what is it called? Pasture planning? Oh, pasture quadrant. Yeah, that's uh, specifically technological development and how that will change, which matters more or less to different types of companies. Can it I'd say be... it probably matters more to hardware companies a lot of the time. Um but there can be big breakthrough software advances too. And does that help designers to, uh, other than just sort of understanding the basic guts of what a technology can do? I think or maybe, it can. The, like, or maybe I, there's I some other tool. It helps you think about what the future might look like. Because if right. you're going to make, if you know the product's going to be totally different in five years, you might make a different decision today. So if you know the thing you're building is only going to matter for the next year, and then you're moving on to something completely different, you'll make a different choice if you're saying, oh, this thing I'm building today is going to be the core of this experience for the next decade. I think you, you make different trade offs. And so I think it's always helpful to kind of have an idea of what's coming around the corner. Well, this is awesome. I mean, like, I, I feel like you've already given us a good, uh, maybe three really concrete uh, uh, pieces of advice and even tools to, to help people who are trying to answer that question. Uh, how can I create more business impact while still feeling like a designer? Uh, we're going to get into some more of that after the break. Uh, everyone, this is uh, the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Lou, and I am here to tell you that we have another conference coming up. And this one is the biggest one that we do all year. It's the Design Ops Summit. It's taking place virtually October 2nd through 6th, 2023. You're gonna wanna be part of it. Even if you're not a design ops practitioner, you might be without realizing it. Certainly if you're a design manager, design program manager, design leader or someone who works with things like research repositories, design systems, I think you probably are doing something related to design operations. And uh, we have just launched the program. You're going to want to check it out. It is En Fuego. Hope to see you October 2nd through 6th at the Design Ops Summit. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I am talking with Ellen Chiza, uh, a, uh, the opening keynoter at Design and Product taking place virtually November 29th. And uh, we've been talking about the values of design and, and digging into this question that Ellen is going to address in her keynote. How can I create more business impact while still feeling like a designer? And uh, we got a lot before the break into the business impact, but... Um, I'm wondering about this still feeling like a designer part. I mean, are you finding that a lot of the designers that you work with, or even when you've done design work, are sort of out of sorts in terms of like in a product setting, maybe they don't feel like they're getting to talk to users or do other things that make them feel like a designer? Yeah, I think this is a common complaint that comes up for people. 
I'll hear a lot from designer friends of, oh, I'm getting pulled in at the last minute and like just being asked to push pixels around and no one really respects the full arc of what I'm trying to do here. Or like we talked about before the break saying, oh, like it's not my job to think about how the thing makes money. I'm just making the best possible thing and someone else will sell it. And so not really feeling like a designer when they're thinking about that overall life cycle of the work. And so I think there are ways designers can help their team to allow them to feel more like a designer. And then I think there's also ways designers can kind of, like we talked about before, let themselves off the hook and give themselves more tools without thinking it's a big compromise to their mission. Okay. And um, are you finding any specifics that really kind of help designers in that direction? Yeah. So I think a big one is expanding the amount of time the designer is able to be in the room and say, being able to take something from, oh, we've just started talking about this strategically through when we've actually delivered it. And so I think getting into that room earlier is something that helps people really feel more like they're being a designer and like feel ownership and value in their role. And so I think the key there is understanding if you're not in the room yet, what is happening in the room and what's not being representative that, represented yet that you'd be able to add. And then kind of figuring out who in that room would be allied with that perspective or would really want you there to be able to speak on that behalf. And mm -hmm. I don't want to say coalition build, I guess, is a very Machiavellian way of saying it, but kind of figure out who on the team is your ally and what you're trying to get done and have them help you get there. So you're not just only advocating for yourself. And then the reverse, it's easier to advocate for someone else than for yourself. So perhaps there's other coworkers that you can work together with on that. So you, you just... A moment ago, you mentioned one of my favorite topics, uh, uh, cadence, and uh, it goes along with one of my other favorite topics, which we covered before the break of uh, shared vocabulary or lack thereof. Um, cadence. So uh, you want, as a designer, perhaps to have longer cycles or even to slow down the process to do the work you need to do. Um, you might address that with coalition building, but that you might not be able to, and, and that's a really hard one, uh, especially when you're working in an environment that's, you know, at least in theory adopted Agile or has some other kind of cadence that it's working toward or that it's working on uh, a cadence totally shaped by quarterly reports to Wall Street analysts. Uh, have you seen anything that helps there? Yeah. I think a really powerful thing, it's funny because people also use this with children a lot, but it's instead of saying, just presenting things as A or B. And so our options can be, oh, if we take a longer period of time to do this work, here are some of the benefits we see, here's what we might be able to do, here's the long-term impact. Or if it is so imperative that we get this done in the next two weeks, here's all of the things that aren't going to happen. I think the challenge that comes up there is oftentimes you don't necessarily know directly what the benefit will be out of having longer a longer time period. Mm. And so in that case, I think it can be important to keep the data over time and say, hey, last time we said it was super important to get this out the door in two weeks. We got the hacky thing out the door in two weeks and it was done on time. But what we saw was it didn't really drive impact in whatever number that person you're talking to cares about. And so like we got it done fast, but it didn't actually have the impact. And so this time around, is it more important we get it done fast or do you have something that you're really trying to achieve here that I can help you with if we have a little bit longer? Maybe I'm overgeneralizing a bit, but getting back to the enterprise settings that you're involved with quite a bit, um, do you find that rather than focusing on revenue and growth, you're, you're actually better off focusing on de-risking? 
assuming that they want to play it safer in the enterprise setting or that they're, they're too big to think entrepreneurially? I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. I would say definitely the further along you are, like you're saying, once you're a public company, you're being tracked quarterly. And so the further down the spectrum you are, the, the more likely you start uh, needing to drive those specific numbers to show the outcomes you want to show. Obviously, there's other types of businesses. There's bootstrap businesses. You can have all sorts of different frameworks for how you succeed. I would say that it's not necessarily that people are risk averse at the later stages so much as there are more factors that they want to consider or need to consider before they make that decision. Uh, I think it's also likely that if you're an individual and you look at it and you're like, oh, there's an obvious answer here, probably, hopefully you work with other good and smart and talented people. And if the answer was as obvious as it looks to you right now, they would also be going there. Mm -hmm. So my first inclination in those scenarios is to go, there's something I don't know yet and go figure out what it is. And if I like go and I try to figure it out what it is and I can't find it and I'm still like, no, like I really think this thing I think is the obvious answer. I start taking that answer to other people and being like, hey, is something off? Am I thinking about this wrong? It seems like this would really help solve our problems. What am I missing? And so I kind of try to frame it instead of being like, we have to do this as being, what am I missing if I see this? Mm -hmm. And that really um, opens the door for other people to accept it because it doesn't feel confrontational. Like you're saying they're stupid. It feels like you've asked for their input on this idea. Uh, so I found that to move it further usually. That's fantastic advice. And, and um, actually, I'm, I want to wrap us up with, well, I'm going to wrap us up with a couple gifts on, on, on your behalf to our listeners. First, I want to ask you, uh, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to not necessarily a, a less experienced designer or researcher, but one who is not necessarily comfortable or confident in doing what you've talked a, a lot about during this podcast, which is the going out and talking with people, especially people who have different motivations, who come from different backgrounds, who work in different silos, who exist in different cadences. Is there any... Just one thing uh, they they should know about going out and talking to people. I think most designers and researchers I've met are very comfortable talking to their users and customers. And I would think of your coworkers and people with other expertise in the same way. So one like really tactical way you can frame it is the design team. Like I, as a designer, am a product, like a consultant that they are hiring. How can I think about what they need the best? And how can I ask them questions about that? And so I wouldn't necessarily think of them as being this totally, completely different type of person. But like, if you can remove yourself a little bit and be like, oh, this is just like talking to a customer. I'm just trying to understand how to do the best thing for them. I think that can really remove a lot of the pressure for most people. That's fantastic advice. Uh, and you've had a lot of fantastic advice for us during the podcast. Uh, and uh, it just makes me look uh, all the more forward to your opening keynote at Design and Product on November 29th. Uh, Anyone listening, there's just, there's just so much uh, that we got out of uh, hearing from Ellen today. And uh, we'll hear from her on November 29th uh, from John Cutler and from a whole bunch of other speakers who are really plumbing this intersection of product and design. Just a lot of goodness is going to come out of the day. I hope you can join us. Before we wrap up, Ellen, uh, in Rosenfeld Review tradition, uh, so what is the gift that you brought to our listeners? It may not have anything to do with design or product. I brought a topical gift because I'm a big reader and I read a lot of books and then I have to figure out how to keep track of all of my notes. 
And so what I figured out is a workflow where I use an app called Readwise to save all of the notes for my books. If you read books uh, in e-format, you can do it automatically, or you can type them in if you're a paper and highlighter type of person. And then I've connected Readwise, which can send you email reminders of highlights from the past to kind of remind yourself of what you've read. But I also connect it to a note-taking tool called Obsidian. And Obsidian allows me to scrape in all of my notes. And so then I can reference them from other places. And so I have a list for my basically daily journal every day of everything I've read and highlighted that day. Or if I'm thinking about a specific topic, AI, obviously a big one recently, I can pull in all of my notes on AI into one place, including all of the stuff that I've read and kept notes on over time. So I would like to provide the gift of Readwise plus Obsidian. That's that's fantastic. And, and you don't realize this, but you it's a perfect setup for uh, a, a book we're publishing in a few months. Uh, Jorge Arango's Duly Noted, which is coming out, I believe, on January 2nd, 2024, uh, that is uh, all about taking notes from a very elemental or fundamental level all the way up to giving you tips on using Obsidian to make a personal knowledge garden. So... Uh, thank you for adding a, a little bit of uh, instructional uh, oomph to our uh, our gardening that we're all going to be doing with our notes. In any case, Ellen, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's great to learn from you, and I'm really looking forward to your talk on November 29th. Looking forward to seeing you there, and hopefully people who are listening can join us too. Thank you. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, lou at rosenfeldmedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one, rosenfeldmedia.com. All those great UX books are there. So thanks again.